within the video, okay, within the video, the interviewer asked the interviewee, tell me about your experience that you had been brought up to heaven. I'm going to read to you what the interviewee said. He said, I believe it was the year of 2003. My spirit left my body. I went to the throne of grace, the throne of God. By the way, it is big as a mountain. God spoke to me. I didn't even lift up my head because the experience of God's presence and glory was just so great. I was literally at his feet. And God said, pray for the United States. Let's now. The simplicity of God saying something so simple to one individual doesn't seem like God's character. I think all Christians know to pray for the United now, States. Tell me about, you, know, you had an experience that I'm in. Don't worry about the video. So, by saying praying for the United States, it's too simple for God. So for whatever reason a person may feel as if, I don't know, whether for prestige, pride, or for personal gain, or for religious piousness, many people use this type of terminology to describe an experience that they may or may not have or had with God. Right? Now, again, this is what the interviewee said when God responded to him. Pray for the United States. That seems like a superfluous embellishment to make it seem as if what he said or what God said to him is true. If you notice what he said when he said, I was brought up, I was in the spirit, brought up to heaven, in the body or out of the body, it seems very familiar, right? Why, why does it seem familiar? Because he took those words straight out of the Apostle Paul's mouth. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up to paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. See, 
unlike the interviewee's revelation, Paul's visions and revelations are authenticated by God himself. When Paul was in the body or out of the body, being brought up to the third heaven, God revealed unspeakable things to Paul in which he did not even communicate to us because we don't have those unspeakable things in Scripture. This is what I'm getting at. When it comes to revelation, we need to biblically articulate what we mean when we tell other people that God spoke to us. Or by using Christianese, saying the Lord spoke to us. What do we mean by that? Are we saying that the Lord speaks to us like he spoke to Moses, Samuel, John the Baptist? Or even to our Lord? Or, for example, when Christ was on that holy mountain just transfigured, showing James, John, and Peter his full deity, the Lord spoke to James, John, and Peter, saying, Listen to my son. The disciples heard an audible voice that will be considered as divine revelation. I am not saying, not at all, that the Lord cannot speak to us again. But what I am saying is that we need to clarify how he speaks to us. Last month, uh, Crystal and I, we went to Holland Theaters right down the street on Porter's Path, I believe. We went to go see Ant-Man. And (laughs) (laughs) we went to go see Ant-Man. And I always tell Crystal, if a movie uses the name of the Lord's in vain, we are leaving, despite how much we paid. We might have paid $21, $5, or a dollar. It doesn't matter to me. We are leaving. Because I got to that point where I'm taking the Lord's name seriously. But while we were watching this movie, and when I told her that, true enough, this particular movie did uses the name of the Lord in vain. And I wholeheartedly believe that God, the Holy Spirit, spoke to me. And this is what he said. Choose you this day whom you will serve. For me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, the question you should be asking, did we get up and leave? I know one thing that is for certain. That is, the Lord God spoke to the Apostle John concerning the blessed revelation of Jesus Christ. This wasn't a personal revelation. 
nor was it a general revelation. What I mean by general, general revelation is what we already, what is already obvious. Creation, birds, trees, sun, moon, stars. That is obvious, a, a revelation that God has given to us. And with that, Paul already tells everybody that every man who is without an excuse, because by God creating everything that testifies that there is a God. That's what I mean by general revelation. But when God spoke to the apostle John, this is a special divine revelation. How do we know that God spoke directly to John about the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, in our text, once I read it to you, our text is Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. John's name is listed as one of them. His name is listed. And this is important when you read when you read throughout the Gospels, let me ask you this. How many times throughout the Gospel of John did John listed his name? None. Not single. Not, not one time that John listed his name as the author of the Gospel of John. But in our text. Well, in the Gospel of John, John used a synonym, pseudonym, to describe to his readers by always saying the disciple who Jesus loved. He said that twice throughout the Gospel of John. The disciple who Jesus loved. And the reason I say this is important is because it shows a great humility of John. It shows that John is humble. As I mentioned before, the Apostle Paul did not even mention himself as the man, as that man who was caught up to the third heaven. He said he knows a man. Biblical scholars always assume that the man that Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians is Paul. We assume. Maybe it is Paul, maybe it's not. We don't know. But I would like to know, I would like to think that it was Paul that was caught up to the third heaven. But the truth is, we don't know. That shows another great deal of the Apostle Paul that he too was humble. And the reason I say that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John was humble because if we look at modern day Christians, we always in the front trying to showcase our talents, trying to say we receive a revelatory revelation from God. We always trying to do that. The Lord said to me, my brother, the Lord said to me, my sister. Every single chance that someone gets, we always trying to boast instead of showing humility. 
And this is why I say that when John listed his name in our text, it seems as if he is saying that God chose me. I, John, a servant of Christ, out of all the people that God could have spoke to concerning the revelation of Jesus' return, God spoke to me. Seems that way. And to this point, this brings us to our text. If you don't mind, turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, and allow me to read our scriptural text to you. When you there, just say amen. It says, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. It says as follows, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I think some of you guys already know that I am a history buff, so I would like to take you guys down to memory lane. And tell you the reason why and how John is on this particular island. The Roman Emperor Domitian exiled Apostle John to the island of Patmos around the year of 80 AD. Fifteen years later, around the year of 95 AD, God the Holy Spirit inspired John to write the book of Revelation. But John was not inspired. God spoke directly to John, telling him to write what? The testimony of Jesus Christ, according to verse 1. The testimony of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, prior to John's exile the, to the island, the Roman emperor wanted to run all Roman citizens to worship the emperor as Lord and God. I think it was at least almost a century that Roman emperors made an edict to all citizens to bow down to Caesar. We know that this is a problem within the Christian context because no Christian, especially Jewish, Jew Christian, Jew Judaism, uh, Jewish Christians, was not going to bow down. Neither are we. But if you don't bow down to 
the emperor. You were either tortured to death, killed by the emperor, or you were exiled to a remote island like the apostle John. And this is how John ended up on the island. John was a very old man at this particular time. He was probably around the age of 95 or younger, a tad bit younger, but no, no more than around the age of 95. And he was banished to this island so that he could do hard labor. Now imagine an old man around the age of 95 doing hard labor. You might as well say that John was in the chain game because he was drilling through stones, rocks, and whatever to build Roman roads so that Roman can have roads. It was like a production as a form of punishment for those who did not obey Caesar's command. Another thing that we need to be mindful is that we shouldn't be surprised that the Apostle John was banished to this particular island because it was revealed to him from our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ told John that he will endure hardship until the second coming of our Lord. This particular revealed promise is recorded in John chapter 21, verse 22. In the Gospel of John chapter 21, verse 22, Peter asked Jesus, was John going to live a long time or was he going to die shortly? Soon after the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, But Jesus responded to Peter concerning John. He said, if it is my will that John remain until I come, what is it to you? Basically, what Jesus is saying to Peter that John will remain to see the second coming of our Lord, but not in the physical sense, but in the supernatural sense. Over and over and over again within throughout the book of Revelation. John repeatedly said that he was in the spirit. Seeing the risen land returning to seek vengeance upon those who do not obey the gospel. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I wish the young adult class was here. I will ask him, what, what day of the week is the Lord's day? What day is that? What is the Lord's day? It's a Sunday. Three days Jesus Christ was in the grave, and on the third day, he rose on a Sunday. 
So it seems that John was in the spirit on a Sunday. My professor from Tocqueville Falls College said that there is a scarlet red theme that runs through the book of Revelation. And that theme is about Jesus, Jesus' second coming so that he will reign as Lord to establish the millennial kingdom and to renew an Edenic earth. That is the theme of Revelation. And as John was in the spirit, he saw the Jerusalem kingdom. If we've all been paying attention to Pastor Gus' messages, we will know that John saw the Jerusalem kingdom. A kingdom that is coming down from heaven. So basically what Jesus did for John was to fulfill his promise. What he told the disciples. That John will remain until he came. Christ fulfilled his promise. Although the disciples may have thought that he was coming very soon. And rightly so. Verse 1 is that promise, which says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show to Jesus' servants and to John. The adverse fact of this is that if it was not Jesus' will for John to live a very long time, for John to reach an age, we may not have the book of Revelation. John could have never received the revelation of Jesus Christ's second coming. And indeed, we too would never receive this particular revelation. If Christ never fulfilled the promise to John. But Jesus fulfilled his promise to John. John received the revelation of Jesus, which allowed all of us to have the very last book of the Bible. The very last. See, to me, it seems like Christ had in mind what he was going to say when the disciples asked about John's longevity of age. Speaking further about revealed revelation. As the book of Revelation was revealed to John, Apostle Peter received revealed revelation concerning the deity of Christ, too. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say, who do people say that I am, that the Son of Man is? They replied by saying, some say you are John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah and others say you are the prophets. But Jesus said 
to his disciples, who do you say that, who do you say that I am? And Simon simply replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is divine revelation. And Jesus answered him by saying, blessed are you, son of Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Just like Peter, who came to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, how many of us understand that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins? And the reason I ask that question Now, as a cliche, because if you ask any other non-Christian, they would tell you they do not believe that. See, when God revealed that divine revelation, just like he revealed that divine revelation to Peter, you came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it is this is what first Timothy chapter two, verse three through through four says. It is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desire all people to say to come to the knowledge of the truth. Come to the knowledge of the truth. That when John received this truthful, truthful revelation, when you receive the truthful revelation about the Son of God, you came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is what we should be doing. We should continually seek the face of our Lord. Seek the truthfulness of Scripture. It's interesting, very, not necessarily interesting, but intriguing, for the lack of words. Whenever you hear someone say, I want to know God, I want to be in his presence, I want to have a have an intimate relationship with God. In the back of my mind, I'd be thinking, well, just read the word. Having an intimate relationship with God doesn't mean you have to have an esoteric, supernatural relationship with God. <laughs> anytime that, I'm, I'm kind of going away from my notes, but anytime Anytime I continue to dwell in Scripture to find and seek the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ, it keeps me away from temptation. It keeps me loving my wife, although I fail at plenty of times, but it keeps me there 
And if I fail, that shows that I'm not doing what I should be doing by seeking the Lord's face. Young man, Mark Jr. Well, you're the only young man other than Rod, because he's younger than me. How can you stay pure? Let me tell you how. Psalms 119, verse 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? It went on to say, by guarding it according to your word. With all, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Divine revelation. That John received. Not only that, in verse, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Jesus to show to his what? To show to his what? His servants. His servants. Who was Jesus' servants? Those who are obedient and faithful are Jesus' servants. What Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. See, John is listed as one of Jesus' servants according to verse 1. This revelation was not only given to John, but all to Jesus' servants. For example, the angel that is listed in verse 1 is, is named as Jesus' servant. And also, the seven churches that is listed in chapter 2 of Revelation is listed as Jesus' servants. So this revelation was received by John, given to the seven churches, and those seven churches shared the same revelation throughout all the churches in the Roman Empire. God is faithful to fulfill his word. He gave it to one person. John handed the revelation over to seven churches, and those seven churches gave it to the remaining Roman churches that was in Rome. And what do you know? We have the same revelation. Jesus' servants. Being a servant of God means much more than what we think. Being a servant of God means much more than what we think. See, It is good that we remind ourselves every Sunday morning. We stand up, we read our purpose statement, and I want to read it to you, okay? This is what we say every Sunday when we read our purpose statement. We gather to worship and incorporate it into our lives. We portray the character of Christ as a what? Servant. 
Now, what is the depth of that particular word? What do we really mean when we say that we portray the character of Christ as a servant? To be very candid and blunt, if you really want to know, when we read that particular word and say that word, what we're really saying is that we portray the character of Christ as a slave. As a slave. See, the English word servant translates in Greek as doulos, which means slave. Some Bible translations, they use the word servant. Other Bible translations, they use the word bond servant. But the etymology, the root word of this particular word servant means slave. And why? It is fitting. It is fitting for throughout the New Testament when we see that particular word servant or bond servant to be there in those passages. Because 85% of the Roman Empire population was slaves. 85%. Jesus used slave terminology to describe his disciples. Paul used slave terminology to describe his, uh, himself to others. I, Paul, a servant of Christ. I know, I may, I may, I don't know, but I may be touching on some toes, but I'm not sure. Because I understand the historical backdrop of American, America's slavery was a horrific, inhumane time, not only for America, but for American slaves. See, I know for sure slavery is within the black community is taboo. You don't talk about it. And rightly so. But get this. From a Christian perspective, slavery is different from America's slavery. Yes, there was brutality in Rome, how Roman citizens would treat their slaves. There was brutality in American slavery as well. But from within the Christian context, slavery was different. And it is different. So, the question we should be asking ourselves is not that we are slaves, but who are we slaves to? That is the question. As John said in the text, a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. Who are we slaves to? Well, Don't take it from me. Let's take it from John chapter 8, verse 34. Our Lord Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. 
So when we read between the lines, what our Lord is really saying, either you are a slave to him or you are a slave to sin or somebody else. You cannot serve two masters. Either you love the one or hate the other. Now, again, within the Christian context, being a slave is a beautiful thing when, it, when you're a slave to Christ. It's a good thing. Why? There is freedom in Jesus Christ by being his slave. Allow me to read you a statement from John MacArthur. From his book, Slave, who illustrates to us the meaning and why Jesus used the slave terminology. Listen carefully. John MacArthur writes, Jesus used slave language to define the reality of what it means to follow him. Discipleship, like slavery, entails a life of total self-denial, a humble disposition towards others, a wholehearted devotion to the master alone, a willingness to obey his commands in everything, an eagerness to serve him even in his absence, and a motivation that comes from knowing he is well pleased. He went on to say, though they were once the slaves of sin, Christ's followers received spiritual freedom in the in rest of their souls through the saving relationship with him by being a slave to Christ Jesus. No amens? <laughs> There's freedom. Just like any other slave who is willing to obey his master. We, too, should be willing and always obeying our master, our Lord Jesus Christ. If we really believe that we are slaves of Christ, we would selfishly obey the commands of our master. We would not disobey, but lovingly follow his words. We will not dishonor him, but honor Christ our Lord as holy in our hearts. Let's talk about what John said about being a witness. Being a witness. Witnessing to the word of God. I think we all... Yeah, I I think I speak freely by saying I think we all know that the Bible is not an ordinary book. It's not, the Bible is not just a book that you just pick off your shelves and just read like the other books that we read from other extra-biblical authors. It's different. For I'm not ashamed of the power of God. Because it's the power. The Bible is the verbal inspired word of God and is what God communicated out of his own mouth, his very own mouth. All scripture is breathed out of 
from the mouth of God. And it is what profitable. Every single word that we read in the Bible was breathe. From God's mouth. Now, if Paul is willing to make that particular statement. He is making a statement that is bold. I think the Apostle John can give us more insight concerning the testimony of Jesus Christ. Turn to First John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. This is what John said concerning the word of God. And I want you to really get this. How John, not only in the book of Revelation, receiving a revelation from God himself, from God the Father, but he also experienced that revelation. Had an experiential experience. This is what John said from the beginning. Which you, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to you that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John is telling us that the word of God that was breathed out of the mouth of God, that he touched it, he saw it, he experienced it in the flesh. So in other words, The incarnated word was incarnated in the full body deity of Jesus Christ. John is saying the exact same thing, I think, in the book of Revelation chapter 1 and 2. John is now saying he did not only heard Walk and touch Jesus, but now he was in the spirit before the throne of Christ in heaven, in the body or out of the body. The text does not say. However, John is now seeing, he is hearing, he is touching the mysterious things that are now in heaven, which concerns the testimony of Jesus Christ. Some of that content is in the book of Revelation. John saw the New Jerusalem. John saw the four horse. John saw death and Hades. John saw all the angels. John saw the seven bowls, the seven trumpets. John touched in a scroll. He experienced these things. As I mentioned before, John not only experienced it, he saw it. He saw it on the holy mountain as well. So, as John is receiving this revelation, 
He is hearing God's very own voice. He is hearing God's very own voice. He, he's writing down and being a faithful witness. And so far, I think he did a great job because we, too, have the book of Revelation. Let's talk about the blessings of Revelation. This is a book about blessings. You know, it's interesting how many pastors or even lay, laymen Christians don't even read the book of Revelation. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they don't understand it. It's too symbolic. It's too figurative. It's whatever figurative language the book of Revelation used, mostly symbolic, but I don't understand why. Because within our text, it says, bless it. This is a book about blessings. The book of Revelation starts with the pronunciation of a blessed or blessedness. And guess what? It ends with that same pronouncement. Blessing. Ends with the same pronouncement. The word blessed is written nine times throughout the book of Revelation. Listen, Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Revelation 22, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. A book about blessings. To bless means to be to, that God has bestowed upon you to prosper through Jesus Christ. God has bestowed all the richness according to Ephesians of Jesus Christ upon you. But what the text doesn't say, because you have to pull it from the Greek, is that blessedness also can be translated as happiness. As happiness. From Greek to English, the word blessed, in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, look at the text. What I'm going to do is just replace the word blessed for happy. It reads as follows. Happy it's the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Happy are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So this is a book about blessings and it's also a book about happiness. This book is for your happiness. I don't know if it's good etiquette to ask you guys how many of you this month have read throughout through the uh, book of Revelation. Show of hands. No, just don't, don't. <laughs> but what I am saying 
This book is about happiness. It's about being blessed. Why? Why? Because one reason, it gives you the future of what will come to pass. It prepares you. I can imagine all of us, if, we, if the rapture comes now or the, oh, we already in the tribulation because it's when Christ rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, that was the beginning of the end times. So the tribulation is now. But understanding the book of Revelation help us to be prepared while we go through the tribulation. Here's another reason. The seven churches that is listed in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Let me read them to you. I'm at 2, verse 11, excuse me. Revelation 2, verse 11. I'm going to read you the seven churches. John listed the seven churches, which, which are, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I'm bringing these particular churches up because they were going through tribulation. They were going through it physically and mentally and spiritually. For example, the church of Ephesus faced persecution in the form of false teaching. And then the church in Smyrna faced physical persecution by being thrown in prison. Let me, if you glance over to Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, I'm going to read their tribulation of what they faced at that particular time. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9 says, I know, this is our Lord's words, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Remember I say about that this is a book about happiness? Continue to read what our Lord said to the the church of Smyrna. That you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Here's the happiness. Here's the blessing. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Are you not happy? I can only imagine that the particular church, although they faced tribulation, they had to endure it. But at the very end, they were happy. (laughs) They were happy. (laughs) 
So when the Apostle John handed the letter of Revelation to the seven elders to be read to the seven churches, those seven congregations was happy to receive the letter of Revelation. Because they knew, as I just mentioned, they knew when you follow the commandments of the Lord, it will bring about happiness. As a quick example, so I can get back to my notes. As a quick example, an insight of Crystal and I marriage, we're being bitter and fighting and et cetera, et cetera, arguing about little stuff. And I have a lot of like bitterness within my heart. There's a flaw. Why? Because I'm not following the commandments of the Lord. What scripture says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Not my words, book of Ephesians. So if I were to follow these simple truths, I would be happy. I would be happy. And I am happy. I'm happy. Allow me to put it this way. Those seven churches, majority of those seven churches, six of those churches out of the seven, they brought tribulation upon themselves. The only church that did not do that was the church of Smyrna. That was the only church that was faithful to the Lord's command. As our Lord said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I know your works. And if you drop down, he's talking to the church of Ephesus. If you drop down to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, he said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Now, this is our Lord talking to the church of Ephesus like he did the rest of the six churches or five churches in this matter. He told them he will come and remove their lampstand. Now, this is not a, a promise. Well, it is a promise, I should say. Excuse me. This is not a joke that the Lord is speaking against a church. He wasn't playing. That particular church is not active right now. Why? Because the Lord did what he said he was going to do because of their unfaithfulness and following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What does that say about us? Although this book is about happiness and it's about blessedness, when the Lord speaks about a church that he will come and remove their lampstand. Do you know what a lampstand is? It's a menorah, a, a Jewish menorah, a large, I think it's seven candle lit, yeah, seven candle lit lampstand. I think they have in the bar mitzvahs that for young Jewish boys. 
But the lampstand that Christ was talking about was a large one. Anytime that a church is unfaithful to the Lord, in due time, the Lord will come and shut down that particular church. And I'm moving away from my notes, but... (laughs) It was shut down that particular church. So, despite the blessedness, despite the happiness, I think that we should be mindful of the same thing. Listen, this is coming from Second Timothy, what Paul said to Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, perse- will be persecuted will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Although those seven churches was facing persecution, although they was in the midst of Satan's Jewish synagogue, it should be expected that all who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. Will face persecution. This is a this is a promise. It's, 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 it's just, I think, it's, it's just simple. So, as God is giving this revelation to John, And according to our text, God said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one that hears. And blessed is the one who who keep what is written in it. Those seven churches. I don't know how. Emotionally, they may or might have felt at that particular time. They didn't have a projector. They did not have YouTube for an audible way to listen to the scriptures. So when the elders read the scriptures, it should have been a blessing. They should have received it with joy. should have received it. Now, this is me being sarcastically funny. (laughs) How many of you would just sit here and allow me to read the book of Revelation to you without you moving or getting up or going home? No hands? No, I think I'm forcing y'all to raise your hands. And the reason I'm saying this is because the book is about what? Blessings. So for me to read what will occur in the book of Revelation is for me to bestow on, upon you 
from God a blessing. You should be able to listen attentively with happiness. Just as Paul told Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, the public reading of Scripture. The seven churches that is listed in Revelation chapter 2 did just that. They devoted themselves to this public reading. They had to. The words was coming from the Lord himself. The words was coming from the Lord himself. As I said, a blessing to, for those who hear. My mic is getting out of whack. A blessing for those who hear. How many people are asleep right now? How many people are listening to the words? See, when, when John said, blessed for those who hear, he is saying to those seven churches, pay attention to what I am saying. This is very important. This is what going to happen. If you follow what is going to, what's going to occur in the book of Revelation and endure the tribulation, you will be blessed. But first, you have to listen. So church, listen. What I'm doing right now, I'm calling your attention. I'm grabbing your attention to say, listen. Now, John also said, a blessing for those who keep what is written in this book. A blessing for those who keep what is written in this book. Now, for those of you who know that I'm the assistant pastor, I'm sure all of you, I see a couple of people I don't know, you know that I desire, well, let me tell you my heart, I desire to be faithful to the word of God. And not to be faithful to the word of God is to bring shame upon me. I think a lot of people can tell if they have, if, if they have, the, have a discerning uh, spirit that a pastor did not study. Now, if I just come up here and give you my opinion, you probably just say Travis didn't do what he was supposed to do uh, a couple of days ago. And that's true. So John is telling everybody. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it, because if you trifle over the word of God, you're going to bring shame upon yourself. Study thyself to show thy approval as a what? As a workman. Study thyself. I know a lot of people, as I said for in the beginning of this message, that because the book of Revelation is somewhat difficult, if you don't study it, you will try to iso Jesus it or iso it. 
And that's just another theological fancy word of saying you putting your own opinion in the word of God. SOG means that you're taking what the Bible says and this literal grammatical historical understanding and you communicating that to the audience. That's SOG, the right way to interpret the word of God. So if I come up here and said, well, John is telling everybody to not keep what the word of God is saying, then I'm just giving my opinion. But John has said, blessed are those who keep what is written in it. Let's move on to the next point. The time is near. The very last word of the very last phrase of the text. The time is near. You know, and (laughs) many people have attempted to accurately predict the return of Christ. And many people have failed because no man knoweth what the hour when the Lord will return. One of the church fathers, Hippolytus, Hippolytus, predicted that the world was going to end in 500 A.D. A.D. means after the Lord has risen from the grave. B.C. means what? Before Christ. So A.D., which was 467 Years after the Lord ascended to heaven. A thousand years later, during the Reformation period, Martin Luther predicted that the world was going to end. And that was in the year of 500, 1500 A.D. Right. Another 500 years later, the year of 2001. Sorry, excuse me. 2011. Herod Camping, a radio broadcaster, predicted that May 21st, 2011, will be the return of Christ in the end of the world. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in Georgia, I saw all a lot of billboards that were produced by this company and speared by Harold Camping himself. Not only he predicted that one time, once, but, well, not once, but twice. And guess what? He failed. He failed. Rightly so. He later apologized that by saying the same thing, the biblical text, which gives us insight that no one will know when the Lord will return. So in our text, It is fitting for John to say the time is near. The time is near. And this is, you know, I I listened to someone's sermon. I think he's right, but he stated that this is not a the word time in Greek. It's not really talking about a 24-hour time. Could be translated as soon or now, at this very moment. 
See, for us, time is a very interesting, immaterial reality. You know, did you know, pop quiz, did you know that the sun rays and the radioactive light that come from the sun took many, many years to arrive? So the sunlight that is shining now, it took years for it to get here. Years. But in our, from our press, uh, perspective, it seems like it was just within 24 hours. We conduct ourselves around a 24-hour day, which we conduct our lives around. We, we do everything by time. We wake up with alarm clocks. We go to bed setting our alarm clocks. We wake up to arrive at work. We go home. We do X, Y, and Z. Your wife tell you to take out the trash and you forget because five minutes later you were trying to do something else. Time, time, time. But let me give you a different perspective that comes from the Apostle Peter. He said, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So, you know how long have it been when Christ risen from the grave from God's perspective? Two days. Two days. For us, 2,000 years. Two days. That just happened from God's perspective. God stepped, the Lord Jesus Christ stepped off his throne on day one, was in a grave. On day two, and on the third day, back in heaven. Within two days. And the reason I'm bringing this up, not because, because what John said, the time is near. The time is near. It may have been two days for Christ to go back to his rightful place. But for us, we cannot waste time. We cannot waste time. We have no time to waste. And I'm not talking about your activities that you have to do. That's not what I'm talking about. Allow me to continue to read what Peter said. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not with notwithstanding that any should perish, but that all should come to reach repentance. It's good that God is not bound by time, and we are. Because either we're going to continue to live as if there is a tomorrow, 
or we're going to continue to live like there is not a tomorrow. That's at the very last sentence what Peter said. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I don't know about you. I think Chris and I can speak very boldly about this. The moment that we left our apartment when we was in Atlanta, a thief just broke into our apartment. Uh, apartment, uh, yeah, our apartment. Stole everything. Did we expect that he was coming? No. Did he know that we was leaving? Yes. So Christ is characterizing himself as a thief. And if you continue to live a sinful life, continue to live as if you will live tomorrow, then you too will be perishing. You too miss the point that the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. If you would ask me, if you ask me, do I know when Christ will return? No, I don't. I do not know. But one thing that is for certain, that I do know that he is coming. Turn to uh, Revelation 22, verse 7. Revelation 22, verse 7. Listen to what the Lord said. He said, what? I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Now, look up at verse 12. He said it again. Behold, I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense with you, with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Now look at verse 20. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies, testifies to these things says, surely I am Coming soon. I don't know when he's coming. All I do know, but he is coming. He's coming. So let's not waste our time. Let's fulfill his commandments. We should. Live our lives unto the Lord, believing that there is no tomorrow, that he is returning, and he will. And as I, I'm going to close with this. As I stated before, this book is about revelation. I mean, this book is about blessing. Turn to Revelation 16, 15. So 
for those who weren't, who was not paying attention, I will bestow upon you a blessing. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Here is your blessing that you may believe and know for sure that the Lord is coming. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. There is your blessing. Blessed is the one who stays awake knowing that the Lord is coming. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your precious people that is in front of me right now. I thank you that you have given me the opportunity to speak your word and speak it truthfully. I just pray for their souls and I pray for my soul and heart as well. That we as a church will not ponder on material things and and the possession of life. But we will continue to focus on you as you come back. 